tell God that because you know what God does? Until uh, the day we die, he keeps teaching us lessons, amen? And he does every day in and day out. And the story tonight is one of that. In the story, 2 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to join David late in his life, okay? Um, he, he, is, he is on the throne of Israel. And at this point, most of his life is in the rearview mirror. He's, uh, he, he, he's gone through life considerably. He's experienced a lot, and there's been much there. And yet, by the good grace of God, the mercy of God, David is still upon the throne of Israel. He's still king of Israel, uh, enjoying the, all that God has given him in spite of just uh, a short while ago, before this chapter, Absalom had tried to usurp it through a coup, take the kingdom away from his father. And David had to flee. You remember the story in a very tumultuous time. He had to flee for his life. And there's traitors and people who, who tried to help Absalom. And, and God delivered him, put uh, David back on the throne. He, God took care of Absalom too. And, and so this is a very interesting time. And yet David now is on the throne. And in First Chronicles 21, which is a parallel passage of Second Samuel 24, that's why I had you turn there, um, You'll be able to see some things in very similar passages, and yet a few nuances to them I want you to dwell upon. But in the chapters leading up to Second Chronicles chapter 21, and, and uh, before I continue, if you need an outline, and uh, we have some outlines in the back, so if anybody needs an outline, uh, Brother John will make his way forward. If you need one, just get his attention there. But in First Chronicles chapter 21, in the chapters leading up to that parallel passage, David had just enjoyed, in Israel obviously, had just enjoyed some victories. And God had delivered their enemies into their hands, given them great victories in one way or the other. And so when we come to this, uh, he's probably, as a king, he's reveling in the good times of Israel right now. God saw him through Absalom, and now they'd won some victories, some things that happened, transpired that were good and, and positive. And he is sitting upon a throne, and he is the ruler of millions of people. Uh, we'll see that just in men alone, there was over a million people now in Israel, and probably two to three times that if you take into account children and women and such, and even older men who wouldn't have been counted as part of the able-bodied men and so forth. And he's kind of taking it all in. He is now kind of uh, realizing, wow, I'm the king of Israel. Israel, who was a refugee from Egypt, who came into this land. And for many years before, the times of the judges and others, uh, they were picked on. And they were kind of the scum of the area, the region. And now Israel had become the powerhouse. Uh, they had become the big kid on the block. They were, as a nation, the ones that were dictating things and other nations being conquered by them and fearful of the Israelites and the Jews. And it was a good time now to be the king of Israel. And it really is an amazing story. It's a miracle that Israel now has risen to this prominence in the region, that they have defeated the Philistines and other nations. They had the upper hand. They were the powerhouse now in this region. And yet the problem came that David was giving glory to the wrong person. All throughout, and in what we see leads up to this, it leads to a great sin. Look in verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 9, 2 Samuel chapter 24. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and his, he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel in Judah. 
For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. Verse 3, And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever uh, they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Verse 4, Notwithstanding the king's word prevailed, against Joab and against the captain of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aror on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi and they came to Danjeon and about to Zidon. And came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah, and even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. What we find initially, you see the Roman numeral here, number, Roman numeral number one, we, we know what transpires in the sense, the general sense. Here's a sin committed stubbornly. Uh, David acts on a whim, and in fact, not on a whim per se, but he acts on his pride, and we'll see that play out here. But there's two vital questions we have to ask immediately as we read this passage, and, and maybe in your own mind the questions popped up. So I think it's crucial that we answer the questions as we delve into God's Word. The first is this, did God cause or move Dave, David uh, to take the census that was an act of sin? A cursory reading of verse number one, we, we might jump to the conclusion that the answer to this question is yes. And we say, hey, look, verse number one, it says that, that God moved David, that, that, he, uh, that then David then said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to number the people. I'm going to uh, find out how many Israelites there are. I'm, I'm a great king. I want to know how many constituents I have, and I want to find out who I rule over. Yet, in answer to that question, I would always caution you and you and I as believers and studiers of the God's, uh, God's Word is, wait a second, because the first thing I would answer this question with is this. Instead of yes or no, I, I'd answer it this way. I'd answer with a Bible verse. I think that's always safe, amen? James chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, we can easily derive from the passage what David did was sin. It was evil. It was wrong. And if we were to say, oh, well, look at verse number 1, it seems to indicate that God came to David and he said he moved David to sin. Now, let me ask you, does God move people to sin? Absolutely not. The Bible's clear. Now, here's the point, and here's the key to this. Whenever we're asking a question, and don't miss this tonight, whenever we, we are asking a question specifically about the very character of God, the actions of God, the first thing we need to start with are the facts and the truth as stated in the Bible. God establishes these truths. That's what this verse is in James chapter 1. It establishes who God is and what God can do and can't do because of his holiness, his just nature, who he is as God. It says very clearly, uh, let no man say that when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So we understand the statement. 
So as we're asking these questions, we start with the biblical truth that we know about him. So based on this truth, God did not cause or make David commit an act of sin. He didn't even tempt him with it. That's, that's not the part that God would play. And that's where the parallel passage comes into play. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, if you will. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, look what the first verse of this passage says. Notice it. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, wait a minute. You might say, well, that's a contradiction. Now, hang on a second. When we get into the Gospels and we find the Gospels record for us a different perspective or view of a story, we don't say that's a contradiction. What we say is, praise the Lord for four Gospels that gives us different details and perspectives and of the same event taking place. And so can I encourage you as I read First Chronicles chapter 1 and 2 Samuel chapter 24, as you do, I don't want to mean anything, uh-oh, this doesn't mesh with the rest of Scripture. No, listen. God's word is clear, consistent. It teaches the truth about God. Now, we can put it all together. We take what the author of Chronicles says. We take what the, oh, what the author of Samuel here says, and we put it together, and what do we learn? Well, you see it on your outline there. It's a very simple thought and simple process. Okay, God's anger was kindled against Israel. We read that. Both passages certainly establish that. And let me reiterate this. This is not a passage saying something completely different. It's just, it's just giving us more details of what happened. Now, let's stop a second there. I know you're filling in other blanks, but listen carefully, okay? It says God's anger was kindled against who? Israel. Now, that's important because both passages start with that. And so often we, we ascribe this sin, the fallout, the consequences to just David. Let's understand this, that God allowed, and here's the key there, right? God allowed Satan. He, he stepped back like he did with Job, said, okay, all right, Satan, you can go ahead and tempt him. You can go ahead and do that. And then I'll tell you, what, what I'm thankful for that, it reminds us that there are times in our lives that God's like this with Satan. In your life, there are times where Satan says, let me have them. Let me have them. I'm going to throw this in front of them. I want to put that carrot on the stick so they fall flat on their face. So spiritually they get hurt and damaged and so forth. And our God in heaven is sometimes doing what? Holding back Satan. And praise be to God for it. Thankful for it. And yet in this situation, like Job's and other times, and even in Paul and his thorn in the flesh, God sometimes pulls back that restraining hand. He says, okay, I'm going to open the door. You see the statement there in the outline. I'll open the door, allow Satan to come in and tempt him. And then David's response. Now, let me back up a second before I get ahead of myself too much. What was it that Israel did to kindle the anger of the Lord? We don't know fully. We can throw out some guesses, some hypothesis. Perhaps it was because of so many had joined with Absalom. That there were those who played the traitor and those who, who said, yes, we need Absalom. And he had won their hearts at the gate, if you remember the story. And so maybe God was condemning Israel for that. Uh, maybe it was a reality of that idolatry taking place. Uh, uh, something that had transpired spiritually and they were not being true to God. Uh, maybe they were too prideful themselves as a nation over the victories that God has given. We don't really know what caused this displeasure, but the displeasure caused God to open the door for Satan to tempt David as he pleased. God, therefore, allowed it. 
So we read in, in 2 Samuel 24, we read in context of James 1, 13. We read in context of 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 21, and we understand when it says God moved him, it means that God moved aside. He allowed Satan in to tempt him, and in that, God is sovereign over it all. He allowed Satan to go and tempt David, and through that temptation, God was able to use uh, the fallout and uh, David's actions to punish Israel even for their sin though we may not know fully what it was. See, Satan tempted David. David gave in to that temptation, and Israel would suffer for their own sin, and David and the nation would suffer for his sin. God's anger over their sin moved him to allow it. So first question is crucial, but there's an easy biblical answer to it that reaffirms our trust in God and who he is and what he is doing, how he's sovereign over all things. Number two, you see the second question there under letter B. What caused David to call for this national consensus? Well, as we've just kind of built the case for, I believe that it was his pride. And I think that flows through here. Even Joab and his reaction, his answer to, Dave, Dave, why do you got to do that? If God has a hundred, uh, hundreds, and what is it to you? You're still the king. It's not going to change anything. You have all of this, David. And so you can see that this is kind of appealing to his pride. Now, I think there's some things to point out for this. I mean, what's the big deal of counting people? What? It's just a census. What? Why is that such a big deal? Well, doing a census in and of itself wasn't necessarily wrong. But it needed to be commanded by God. See, at times throughout the Scripture, we read that God said, count the people, and count the people, and count the people. And he instigated the consensus. And there's an important point about that. Who did Israel belong to? Was it David's or was it God's? It's God's. It belonged to God. And by David saying that, he, he, he's kind of, oh, this is my nation. This, this nation belongs to me. And, and God's having to give a reminder, David, I'm the one who puts kings on the throne and removes them. Israel is not known as David's people. It's known as God's people. This nation's my nation, David. And so there's a reminder in here of that. And then secondly, he did not do the, cons- uh, the census the way that God had instructed in the Scripture. I love this truth. Sometimes it's lost in this passage. But the reality is, as he did this census, the very action of doing it and how, method, how he did it, was indicative of the pride that motivated it. You see, back earlier, God himself had given instruction about those censuses that he would have, and he would allow kings to do at times, and so forth. Exodus 32, and verse number 12, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no, what's the next word? Plague. Hmm. That there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. Now here's what's interesting. We look at the story. You can read ahead. Uh, they don't take up any kind of ransom. And that ransom was a half shekel as that passage describes. And so it was something collected. And, and certainly uh, the idea if you want to call it a tax or whatever the case may be. But it was collected at the time of the census. Okay? And we jokingly say, you know, whenever the government does a census around here, they want to tax us more. Well, even in, in, in God's established theocracy, this was a means of the census was always accompanied by what was often referred to as the redemption payment and so forth. And, and so it's interesting that did not take place. 
And this verse may have been the whole reason Joab, his confidant, Joab, his, his mighty man of war, Joab spoke up and said, listen, David, this isn't good. We ought not to do this. Maybe the very reason. Why do we think that? Or why do, you, why do you think that, Pastor Henry? Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you'll see it there. Um, when Joab finishes his statement, and I, I can find the verse for you. When Joab speaks to him, verse number 3 is where it is. He finishes it with this statement. Why will he, speaking to David, the king, yeah, he's saying, you're the king. Why would he, you, the king, be a cause of trespass to Israel? David, why are you going to heap sin on Israel? David, why are you going to cause this uh, sin to fall on Israel by doing the census? And, and Joab knew there, there wasn't the idea of gathering that ransom. There wasn't anything behind it of God ordering it. No, uh, Joab understood this is going to be bad. This is not going to end well. I'll tell you, in all likelihood, I think Joab knew the law. He, he probably understood where this was headed and what would be the problem, the fallout. And uh, as he tries to reason him with him, uh, boy, David doesn't listen, does he? Sure enough, no, no redemption money. The, the half shekel was not collected as part of the census. And it was purely to do what? Fuel the pride of David. It was to stroke his ego. It was for him to puff out his chest and say, look at me, look at look what I've accomplished. I'm, I'm the great king of great Israel. And it really was the motivation behind doing it. And what happened, and I think this is a great point of, that comes out in this story. At other times, it was evident that David would listen to Joab. He would seek Joab's advice, Joab's counsel, and other wise men. He, he, he would go to them and say, okay, this is one, uh, the priest, whoever, Sam, you, you name it. David would want to seek input and counsel through it. And yet the reality is, as we even state on the outline here, David stubbornly would not listen to good counsel. Here is Joab, he's speaking wisdom, and he's trying to reason logically and biblically with David, and David has nothing to do with it. In his pride, he turns a deaf ear to good counsel. And I just challenge you tonight, I sure do fear that too many Christians today operate too independently when it comes to making life's decisions. That we get an idea in our head and, and without seeking good counsel, without uh, using the, uh, the sounding board of good godly counsel, of good Christians, uh, we just kind of act upon our own desires uh, and it does not always turn out well. I fear that, uh, forgive me, this is not trying to pick on any generation per se, but it does seem that the up and coming generations have a tendency to shun the counsel and wisdom of spiritual leaders, older Christians, and fellow believers. There's a problem with that. We'll see it biblically in just a way, but the first is this. Here's my question I would reason with you, and I'll be honest, it's not just one generation, two generation. It's kind of seeping into all the Christendom where we just kind of act independently. We don't seek spiritual counsel. We don't, uh, whether it be a pastor, another spiritual leader, we just don't, we don't come and say, could you pray with me about this? What do you think about this? And just using that sounding board, a, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, just, just hey, what, what, what do you think about this? Lord's laid this on my heart, and, and here's my question to that. Or my statement, however you want to take it. I've never understood that if you believe something is what you should do, why you would shy away from good godly counsel to confirm it. I mean, if God's behind it, 
Can't God cause the counsel you seek to confirm what he's leading? I mean, if your counselors are good and godly and they're seeking God's will and they want the best for you and they want God's will done, would they not confirm it? I mean, if it was truly God's will, won't God in heaven, isn't he sovereign enough to cause your counsel to line up? And I think that's why the Bible makes a, a statement. In Proverbs chapter uh, number 11 or verse 14, a, a powerful statement. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. I love the two, the two thoughts here, okay? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, there is, in one, there's a fall. There's ability to fall. There's no safety here, okay? I, I can get on this edge, but I could fall, and, and as old as I am, I could probably hurt myself falling that distance. Hey, there's no safety here. There's, there's the potential of falling. There's nothing there. But boy, I come over here, and I might be able to break the rail as heavy as I am. But uh, reality is there's some safety here. I'm not going to fall. There's some safety presented by that railing. And it, it's a simple picture. The verse makes it very clear. Listen, why would you not seek counsel? Why would you not allow God to confirm and, and support what you believe to be the, God's leading in your life in one way or the other? Decisions of life, the things that come up. Why wouldn't you just seek some good godly counsel? Because in the multitude of counsel, what is there? There's safety. There's safety. And yet independently, we try to act sometimes. I, I just know this is God's Great. If that is truly God's will, cannot God confirm it? Cannot God do what he did with Gideon? Okay, I'm going to keep throwing out that fleece. <laughs> and God leading the same way every time? Can God not do that? You see, friend, how Herod applies to this story is this. What we don't read, David doesn't call for the priest. Hey, I, I believe God would, I, I believe I should do this. I believe I should number the people. And, and what do you think God would want me to do? He doesn't call the prophet Gad, who is his seer. He is the guy that, that comes along spiritually and gives David wisdom. And he doesn't say, hey, go send a message to Gad. I, I got to ask him if God is in this. He doesn't. Do it. Joab is the only one we hear that actually speaks up. I don't think this is a good idea, David. And did you catch, did you catch what the Bible says? The word of the king prevailed. His own desire, his own lust, the thing that he wanted, his pride-induced determination of what he should do won out. Why? Because pride didn't let him call for Gad, who shows up later with the judgment of God. His pride didn't let him call for the priest. His pride didn't let him listen to Joab. You know, here, here's the, some advice. I just encourage you. When you seek out multiple counselors, they might not all perfectly agree, but you will find a consistent, overwhelming consensus among godly counselors. God has a great way of lining them up. And you'll hear, and okay, there's a theme here. There, all these counselors, this multitude of counselors that I've found, that I've thrown this out to, boy, they are consistent. I found a consensus, what the majority says, and what God is leading them to give me advice and counsel to. There is safety found there. And so I say, Christian, beware. Why? Because where no counsel is, what happens? People fall. People fall. Obviously, it's inherent to the statement that you have to listen to and you have to heed the counsel given. 
I've found it too often that in our human nature, too many of us will reach out to many counselors only with the thought of finding the counsel that matches what I want to do. And when you find that, then you think you're validated in one's actions. You know, essentially, we may ask counsel or hear it, but the fact is we have no intention of doing it unless it confirms the action I have already decided upon. And so I say to that, Christian, beware. Where no counsel is, people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. I'll tell you, you know, we're thinking maybe in terms of a circus, you know, the trapeze that do the big swings and things like that. I would never do that in all my life. However, if there was a safety net at the bottom, I'd try it. I would. Of course, I'd let somebody else go first to make sure the safety net worked. I ain't dumb. But I'd try it. I'd try it. Can I tell you in big decisions in my life, man, I sure am thankful that God provides a multitude of counselors. It's just my responsibility to go to them, to listen, to heed, and allow God to work through that multitude of counselors. We, we know God has placed people in our lives, parents and grandparents and, and good friends and deacons, Sunday school teachers, pastors and, and others, pastors' wives, to help us and to, to use. God's going to use them as a multitude of counselors to guide and direct us. And boy, what trouble we can get in when we don't follow God's word. Boy, David found that out. He's, he's a prime example. He, he should have been calling for Gad right then. Gad, do you think this is a good idea? And then could you imagine Gad be like, really, David, you're asking God that? <laughs> Let me just quote Exodus. Let me just share with you what God would say. But he doesn't, and so the only time that Gad shows up is now punishment time, as we'll see in a moment. Furthermore, I want you to see this. I think this is kind of neat about this chapter and this incident and event in David's life. Furthermore, it wasn't a hasty decision in which he didn't have time to make it right. And in fact, we can think of that conversely to his sin with Bathsheba. Okay, uh, we'll see a, a momentary action, uh, maybe a certainly regret at some point, but uh, uh, just a one-time occurrence. For David, this was not the case. Verse number eight, at least in this situation, verse number eight tells us what? tells us that he had nearly 10 months to repent and stop the sinful act. Nine months, 20 days. Anywhere along the way, he could have stopped it. God's not acting and moving during these 10 months or nine months and 20 days. God is just sitting back saying, okay, David, what are you going to do? And I can guarantee you the moment we know from experience, the moment David made the decision to count the people, what happened here? Prick, prick, prick. Holy Spirit goes to work. And for nine months and 20 days, David does nothing. You see, friend, this is a cool, calculated decision on his part. A prideful rebellion against God. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want. It's interesting, as you hold up these two sins, it, it reveals something. And there is something of the comparison that I think is good for us to see even tonight. As we hold this sin up, and then Bathsheba's, or David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, interesting cons uh, comparison. I didn't put this in a slide, I, uh, so I'll just uh, share it with you. So listen carefully. Number one, this sin here is a sin of the spirit, pride. Well, that was a sin of the flesh. It, it's an interesting contrast and comparison. 
This is a sin of the spirit. That was a sin of the, of the flesh. This sin, number two, this sin was deliberate with a persistency over several months. The other sin, as we kind of alluded to already, was impulsive as he gave in to the desires of his flesh. A momentary action that led to a lifetime of consequences to some degree. This sin, number three, this sin impacted an entire nation. 70,000 people died, and many more could have. The previous sin, it really only affected his family, his child, and Uriah. More limited in its effect. Then in number four, in both sins, and I think this speaks to the goodness of our God, David had some time to repent. To own up to it. To go to God and say, God, I have sinned. Before Nathan came in with Bathsheba, before Gad comes in here in this chapter, David, in God's mercy, was given time to repent, to make it right. And yet, in both cases, he waited too long and faced the dire consequences of his sin as God confronted him. Here's a point. Let's not miss it tonight. In modern-day Christianity, in our churches today, we, we would likely act uh, like adultery and murder are the more serious sins than pride and rebellion. But it is noteworthy in David's life that his pride and rebellion produced the greater tragedy and sorrow, the greater consequences. God judged harshly, if you may put it that way, God judged greatly in a, in a broad sense the pride and the rebellion of David. And today you and I might say, well, isn't, isn't adultery and murder so much worse? But God clearly in Scripture says, my friend, your, your pride, your stubborn rebellion of not doing things God's way is as bad, if not worse. God hates all sin. Sometimes we have a way of putting it in degrees, and, and uh, you and I may... <laughs> We may see an adulterer walk in those back doors. We may see a murderer walk in those back doors, and we have great disdain for them. We look down heavily on them because of their sin. But what if a prideful person walks in? What if you and I struggle with pride? Do we hate it as much as God hates it? I find it interesting. In that day and age, everybody knew witchcraft was terrible, horrible, and everything in the Old Testament. And what did God say rebellion was like? The sin of witchcraft. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Everybody was like, ah, witchcraft, ah, you know, really, oh, that's terrible. That's the worst of the worst. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what's as bad as witchcraft? Rebellion. You know what God just said in this, these stories and, and the consequences and how God dealt with it? Because reality is, is many of us are like, what's the big deal? He just numbered the people. He took account. What's the big deal compared to murdering and adultery? You know what the big deal is? Pride is the big deal. Rebellion against a sovereign God is a big deal. And God shows what he feels about it, what he thinks about it, what he has already determined that, well, be careful, be careful. You see, this pride and rebellion produce such tragedy and sorrow. We must beware of all sin in our lives, both of the flesh and the spirit. Paul would write later, and I love what he says to the church at Corinth. He says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of what? The flesh and the spirit. 
Boy, we're so good. And you remember in Christ's day, he said, boy, we're so good. Hey, the religious people that day are so good cleaning the outside, but the inside was filthy. The whited sepulchers challenging them in that day about their inconsistency, their hypocrisy. I love what this verse says at the end, perfecting holiness in the what? The fear of God. Can I just put it this way? David, for a few moments, lost the fear of God. He should have said, well, well, God has already spoken in Exodus that if I count the people and if I act in pride, God has made that clear throughout the words that he's given us in law. If I act in pride, God's not going to be happy. There should have been a fear of God in David in the moment that prevented him from sinning. In that nine months and 20 days, the fear of God did not win in the heart of David. You know what won? His pride. His pride. May it not be said of you and I, Look at verse number 10. Let's read a little bit of the fallout here in chapter 24. Verse number 10. And David's heart smote him after that. He had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall uh, seven years of famine come unto thee in the land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or, or that there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I I am in a great strait. I don't know what to choose. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even unto the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arona, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Interesting statement and many things we want to draw out. But number two, let's do this real quick. Number two, that sin caused suffering. Okay, Now, I would put before you, and a careful reading of this passage, I believe, puts it in a chronological time frame that is very similar to what we saw with Nathan and David in his sin with Bathsheba. Okay, You remember Nathan came in, and he told the little parable, the little story about the neighbor who stole the sheep, and yada, 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 that was a pet. Okay, And he confronted him, and he says, thou art the man. Okay, so And then after that, David repented. We have the psalm in which he repents of that and so forth. Okay, I believe what we read in verse 10 of David's confession was in response to what verse 11 and following says. Okay, so And I think the key here is in verse 11, he says, for when David was up in the morning, Okay, I think 10 comes first, but in chronological order, he describes why 10 happened. Why was David's heart pricked? Why did he have this going on? Why? For when in the morning God spoke to Gad, then Gad came to David and he delivered this news. And so I think if we put it in proper order, or I think he's saying, listen, David did this and here's why. Here's what happened right before that. The Bible does this in many situations and circumstances. The Bible will tell us something and then says, here's why that happened. 
and so forth. And so I believe that transpires here in this passage in verse 10 describing David's heart after God visited him through the words of Gad. And uh, that kind of gives us that. But the key through all this, whether that be the case or simply after Joab coming back with a number, it was too late. Time was up. And I love what verse 10 says. David understood the magnitude of a sin. Again, you and I, uh, this world, we might say, what's the number in it? That's not a big deal. You know what David said? I have sinned greatly in that I have done. I have sinned greatly. You know, to many, the numbering of the people is not a big deal, not, a, not as big of a sin as adultery and murder. Yet from God's standpoint, taking the census was a sin of great disobedience, of pride and rebellion against him. I think it parallels, too, what we alluded to earlier. Isn't it amazing when you study the Gospels? God came down so much harder on those who had pride and rebellion and really called them out and, 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 and boy, just really put forth the word of conviction, but then for a publican, for some others, oh, he condemned their sin, but he was also graciously forgiving. See, God has made it a point that pride, pride, haughty spirit, what do they go before? A fall, destruction. So God is, takes that seriously, even in one like David, especially in one like David. See, all sin is evil and wrong, and we should shun them all, but the reality is we sure don't want to underestimate the awful consequences and seriousness of pride and stubborn disobedience. Well, God allows him to choose it, right? And, and I like First Chronicles chapter 21. It puts it in the parallel of the, the three years of famine, the three months of fleeing before the enemies, three days of, uh, of pestilence. And wisely, what does David do? He throws himself on the mercy of God. And, and so it starts in the morning. And uh, right at the beginning of the morning, and it lasts all day, as the Scripture says, to the appointed time. That would be the evening sacrifice, the time for that. And through that day, the angel has already slain 70,000 Jews. And could you imagine what that would have been like? And so there is David. There's the elders. They're dressed in sackcloth, and they're watching what's transpiring. And there in Jerusalem, the case. And, and I love this, this event that happens. This is pretty amazing. The Bible describes for us in these two passages that David looks, and he sees the angel of the Lord. And as he looks up, the angel of the Lord is between the earth and heaven, and he describes it as seeing him with a sword, and the sword is pointed out. Now, I sure do like swords. But in medieval time, you didn't want to be on the wrong end of a sword, amen? And in this case, it was judgment was coming. It was going to fall. And as David looks, the sword is stuck out over Jerusalem, meaning the angel's going to move on if God doesn't stay him. And that's then when David responds, why, why, Lord, what about these? It was my sin and so forth. And you certainly appreciate that sentiment and so forth. But here, here's my question for you. David's heart was convicted. Man, it hit him hard. In that moment that others would suffer. Here's my question for you. What if when you sinned, God was able to or did open your eyes and above your home stood an angel with a sword stretched out signifying that your sin was going to affect your home what if you saw the angel after your sin standing above your church and the sword held out and because of your sin he's chastening pastoria baptist church 
that your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of this assembly, are going to suffer because of your sin? What about your community? Because of your sin, you're, they will suffer. This, boy, this hit David right between the eyes. He cries out, interceding on the behalf of the nation, and, and that's wonderful. But let's not forget what verse 1 said. This wasn't just about David's sin, and in many ways, this was a just judgment. His anger had been kindled. They had done something wrong likewise, and so they were suffering, yes, for David's sin, but also for their own sin as a nation. But God, in his wondrous kindness, brought the plague to a halt. Roman number three simply says this, the sin calls for a sacrifice, calls for sacrifice, Two things caused the judgment to be stopped. The great and wonderful mercy of God. Verse 16 speaks to that. And the reality that God himself, he, he changed his mind. He was merciful. He was long-suffering. And then the confession and sacrifice of the sinner in verses 17 and following. And even c- continues to verse 25 where it's clear because of that, as he built the offer, offered the burnt offerings, peace offerings, so God was entreated. Jehovah was entreated because of those offerings and things there. I love this statement. There's a great truth to be found here that God comes to David and in verse number 18 and following through Gad and he says, okay, I want you to build an altar. I want you to do it here. And he tells him the place. And so he goes and he buys the land, the ox and the wood from the man who owns it. And, and yet the man says what? I'm, I'll give it to you, David. If, if this will help, I'll, I'll give you the gift. You just take the oxen. You take the land. You take the threshing floor and use the wood. You just take it, David. And yet David refuses it. He wants to pay what it's worth and then some. He gives the reason for that in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and in verse 24, the latter part of it, you see it here and in your Bible. David says, For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without a cost. I love the principle he puts forth. I'm not going to give the Lord another man's sacrifice. He, he understood the principle that a sacrifice must be what? Just that. What the term signifies. Us giving up something, not cheap, not easily gained, but something valuable and meaningful to us. It's throughout the scriptures, right? Because uh, what kind of lamb? Oh, look, that one's lame. Let's give that one to God. No. That, that man, that, 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 is, that is the runt of the litter. He is not, let's give that one to God. No, what did we offer God in the Old Testament? Perfect, the best. And so my friend, the sacrifices of God are to be perfect, the best. They're to be a just that, a sacrifice, not easily gained, not cheaply won, not, not, no, 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 the best. And so David understood that. I'm paying for my sins. I'm offering the sacrifice of burnt offering. And my friend, listen to me. It is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ because friend, He was the best and is the best. He's the perfect lamb of God. David understood the principle. It's not a sacrifice unless I truly sacrifice. And so he did. I like the statement here. He offers a sacrifice, verse 25, and the Lord was entreated for the land. The plague was stayed from Israel. And man, God is merciful and good. And yet throughout these stories, what do we always see? We see that the grace of God is evident in these events. Remember what came of David's first sin with Bathsheba and and the murder and taking her to be wife and so forth? Well, God was gracious, and guess who was born later to Bathsheba? Solomon. Solomon just became the next king of Israel. He built the temple of God. And to add to that, it was through Solomon's line that Jesus Christ thereby got the legal Jewish um, uh, line 
to the throne of David. You see, God always has a way of bringing good things from bad. Turning them into blessing, if we may put it this way. And that grace was displayed in this episode. How? You're in First Chronicles. Turn with me to, well, real quick, if you will, to Second Chronicles. And we're almost done. Second Chronicles chapter number 3, if you will. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 3. We, we read something interesting. If we didn't know the story, we might easily pass it. But Second Chronicles chapter 3, look, look at verse 1. And it talks about Solomon building the temple. And, and now it adds context for us as we know the story behind it. Look at verse 1. Second Chronicles 3, 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in the Mount Moriah. Notice this statement. Where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan. And that's the, the first chronicle's name for Aruna. Okay, same guy, the Jebusite. Isn't that amazing? See, what well, we come to find out, just like he worked in that sin with Bathsheba, God brought something very good out of this situation. David bought the land there, the threshing floor. He, he bought all those things, and that land is the place where it becomes the building site of the future temple. Solomon is able to erect that temple in a place where David, his father, offered a, a sacrifice. And you know what it just further proves for us even this evening? That God can turn a curse into a blessing. And he loves to do that. Even when we make mistakes, even when we sin, God has a wondrous way in his mercy and his love for us. Let's take away six things real quick and we're done. Number one, okay, uh, is simply this. We never outgrow temptation. David was no longer a youth. He was no longer a young man and in any way, a young adult when he committed the sin. He was up in years. He, he was older near the end of his life. May I just remind you tonight, you never outgrow temptation. Senior saint, you never outgrow temptation. Number two, we are reminded that God is graciously long-suffering and often giving us time to repent. It was over nine months that David was given to change his way before God really uh, brought judgment and chastening, at least in the sense of judgment. Can I just remind you tonight, it sure does pay to keep short accounts with God, to deal with sin quickly, to confess it and make it right. Number three, sins of the Spirit can do great damage. Sometimes when we hang on to a little pride, when we're a little rebellious and choosing our own way, and not many people can see it, and only me and God know about it, and, and I hang on to it, and we think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not impacting them. It's not doing much damage. But it is like a cancer that is inside of you doing great damage. My friend, it can hurt you greatly. Oh, all sin is wicked and brings consequences, but let us not re ignore the repeated condemnation the Bible gives for rebellious and stubborn pride. A hard heart and a proud look can often cost us more than what the sins of the flesh can cost us. Number four, one will always impact others. One sin will always impact others. David's sin throughout his life always affected others, and the same is true for you and I today. You can't make choices. You can't do your own thing. You can't act in pride and rebellion without impacting someone else. Number five, uh, quickly, true confession repentance involves sacrifice. It's more than just a quick prayer and a quoting of 1 John 1, 9. Confession includes repentance. It includes sacrifice in which we face our sin honestly. We, we turn from it. We put our stubborn pride up on the altar. God, I was wrong. David did that well in that statement. His heart said, I have dealt 
foolishly, God. I have sinned greatly. And that contrite heart he offered as a sacrifice. Can I tell you, true confession is much more than just saying I'm sorry. We have a modern-day perception that if I just tell God I'm sorry, everything's hunky-dory. No, friend, God wants you to see you repent. Change your mind. To put something on that sacrifice, it, uh, that altar, your pride, your whatever, may, a contrite spirit, I'm offering, Father, this is my sacrifice and my repentance and my confession. God wants to see that. It's detailed throughout scriptures for you and I. Last but not least, end on a very good note, right? God's forgiveness is readily available all the time. And it's often, often dispensed with a gracious blessing. <laughs> Just proving once again that we serve a very great God. And may I tell you, you know what I'm going to move you and I to do? To join David in what? Putting ourselves in the hands of a merciful God. I love that statement from this story. He says, I'm not going to fall in the hands of man. I'll fall in the hands of a merciful God. My friend, when you and I sin, can I tell you the best thing you and I can do is throw ourselves in the hands of a merciful God begging for forgiveness. And what is he? Oh, my friend, he is faithful to forgive. David found it to be true, so can you and I. Hope it's a good reminder. David was taught throughout his life many lessons on sin, and I trust it has been a good lesson for you and I tonight. Mind you of the prayer request we already made.